This is Jewish Board Talk with Sharif Zephard, only on 101.9 High FM. Business Day columnist Ismail Lagerden had an interesting piece in the paper on Monday that looked at the different types of ways that the war between Russia and the Ukraine is being fought. There's no better person to help impact the impact of this different types of warfare, be it psychological, potential nuclear, or traditional, than Dr. Uh, Professor Glenn Siegel, research fellow at the Esri Center for Iran and Gulf States Research at the University of Haifa in Israel. Professor Siegel, welcome and thank you so much for joining me. Good afternoon and thank you for having invited me. Are we going to see a nuclear war? Is that an option? I don't think we are going to see an escalation to that. All sides want to step back from actually going full military against each other. In my opinion, Putin's uh, intentions in his military action into Ukraine is to obtain a political solution and to basically obtain territory. He's no real favoured in terms of losing his own military forces. But having said that, um, he has actually said he's put his uh, nuclear deterrent forces, well, the exact words were he's put his deterrent forces on full standby with their friends being nuclear forces. And this actually takes us back to 2009, which is the intermediate uh, range nuclear agreement between the two sides of the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union, which basically lapsed. So he has technical nuclear weapons over there. Let's go down the pyramid from nuclear to conventional. What Putin has actually done, all industrial warfare invasion of Ukraine, tanks, aircraft, artillery, heavy pieces of machinery, and in response, Ukraine, which doesn't really have much of that, is using what we would call guerrilla warfare. And guerrilla is Spanish for small. In other words, it's basically militias, hand-to-hand combat. And it can be very, very successful. But the difference between the two, obviously, is one is using tanks and guns and artillery pieces and aircraft. Another one is hand-to-hand fighting. We call this asymmetrical warfare because there's an imbalance. Now, Putin can actually control all of the territory and all the communications and road lines in Ukraine, but he cannot control the people. And this is, uh, if we had to do an example or uh, a comparison, is something which the United States faced in Vietnam. 10,000 days, 30 years of military occupation of a country, but you actually haven't subdued the people. So we are actually seeing an intense rebellion revolt of individuals in Ukraine who don't want to actually be oppressed by a military force. We are probably going to see within the next 24 hours, maybe even later today, Friday, Saturday, the imposition of martial law by the Russian military forces on Ukraine. In other words, a declaration that they are actually in control, they are the government, and that the government sitting in Kiev isn't it. What we have seen is, as you mentioned, two other types of warfare, which has been waging probably since about 2004, when uh, the original onset of this conflict happened with two victors running for presidency of the Ukraine. We've been seeing cyber warfare and we've been seeing psychological warfare. Psychological warfare, who is to blame for this? And the cyber warfare, which includes attacks on financial institutions and individuals. Looking at uh, who is to blame for this is something which is very, very deep in in the hearts of Jews and and, uh, even more so Israelis. The close affinity that we have uh, towards both Russia and the Ukraine. The president of the Ukraine is Jewish and uh, around 2 million Israeli citizens or even call it 20% of the Israeli population are Russian, Ukrainian, all coming from uh, 
the Baltic states, as uh, many South African Jews, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, we have to say, well, what is Russian and who is Russian? About 20% of those living in Ukraine are actually Russian. And this is part of the psychological warfare which Putin is waging. He's saying, well, if they are Russian, this should be Russia. So the two eastern republics and the Crimea Peninsula should in fact be part of Russia, not Ukraine. And this could similarly be said for Latvia and Estonia, where 25% of the population there are Russian. Lithuania slightly less, 5%, but they have a sizable Polish minority over there as well. So we're stuck in this sort of like another world there as Jews. Do we support the Jewish president of Ukraine? And indeed, uh, we often say over the last few weeks that Putin is very anti-Semitic because of his attack against the Jewish president of Ukraine. And indeed, came to a fore a few days ago as well, when he bombed the Babi Yar memorial to the concentration camp of Babi Yar, which was in Ukraine territory during the Second World War. On the other hand, Putin has given us uh, a freedom of hand against military activities, uh, our military activities in Syria, which is also asymmetrical. It is against Iranian-backed militia forces, such as uh, Hezbollah, who want to uh, increase their military capability and attack Israel. But, uh, Putin has supported the Assad regime in Syria, but he's also given us a freedom of action without actually defending Syrian airspace. But we're also waging an asymmetrical warfare there. Uh, Israeli aircraft are bombing targets of Hezbollah, but we are unable to subdue the militias or the military, the civilian population which are aligned to those terrorist organizations. I think Vietnam might be a perfect example of uh, this asymmetrical warfare in terms of you can control the territory, tanks, with guns, with artillery, with aircraft, but you cannot control the population. And uh, we've learned that from Lebanon and Syria, we've learned that from Gaza, and Russia is now learning that in the Ukraine, so that they can actually force the population to try and rebel against the president of Ukraine by saying, give Putin what he wants, but on the other hand, you're not controlling the people. I mean, one of the images that came out um, was Ukrainian citizens making, I don't know what they were making, but using old beer bottles to make it. I imagine some kind of bomb or something. I, I mean, it just, you know, you talk about asymmetrical warfare, you talk about, I mean, how effective are these different types of warfare? And is there one that's going to define this conflict? They were making what, uh, and in fact, it's called the Molotov cocktail, because this is named after the Russian Molotov. It's basically a bottle with petrol in it, a rag closed at the top, and you light it and you throw it and it explodes. And this was a type of warfare used um, during the, the Second World War against invading Germans, uh, named after the Russian Molotov. And that name has stuck for many, many years. It works. In other words, if you have a truckload of soldiers coming towards your village, um, throwing one of those into the back of the truck will definitely set those soldiers afire. And uh, if you can actually get on top of a tank and drop one of those inside the tank, the top of the turret of the tank, you're going to set the driver of the tank uh, alight. The one thing which we have to look in these types of warfare is that uh, military means isn't going to solve it. That essentially what is happening in Ukraine, what is happening in Russia, what is happening in Syria, uh, what is happening in Lebanon or Gaza needs some sort of political solution. It needs an agreement that uh, people have to live with people. Uh, Putin has invaded Ukraine, but he's already started negotiations. He himself, no matter how unstable in mind he is, realizes that he's not going to be able to occupy Ukraine. 
what he needs specifically is a change of government in Ukraine to favor Russia and to become a satellite of Russia and then to remove his forces. So military is not going to actually be the solution. It is a means to a solution. On the other hand, NATO, the neighboring countries to Ukraine, for example, Poland, or Czech state or Hungary or Moldova, or further afield, the United States within the NATO alliance, do not want to use military force because they know that's not going to actually achieve the victory as well. And they have two lessons which we've learned over the history of that. One, in the 2003 invasion of Iraq to remove the threat of Saddam Hussein. And that took seven years of military uh, forces, uh, 44 nation coalition in Iraq, which didn't achieve it. The same can be said of Afghanistan. International alliance also under NATO from 2001 until a few months ago, 20 years didn't achieve it. And the same for Russia. The former Soviet Union spent nine years in Afghanistan as well and didn't achieve anything militarily. So we see military is a means very much in terms of defense. It is the extension of diplomacy by other means. It is a strategy to achieve a short objective, but it is not a solution in this today's world. Just before we, we look at solutions, because obviously it is, I just want to bring in the financial warfare, because is that a new thing that is being played out? Financial warfare has always been an element of war. The central banks of Europe, which were established between five and 700 years ago in different European states, were established for the purpose of gaining funds in order to arm, train, and fund militaries and armies to go to war. The central bank was, in fact, a financial institution of war. We do know that uh, economic sanctions, boycotts, and so forth are types of warfare which have long-range effects, but take a long time to implement and be effective. So the immediate closure of Russia financially is not going to harm it immediately. It might take six months or even six years for things to actually shift and change. But there's no other means for the world to express its discontent and anger at what Putin has just done. So the financial way is a means. But the one thing which we always know with financial warfare or using economic means is the first person who suffers is the man in the street and not the government. There's going to be the Russian citizen who really has nothing to do with this conflict, who is the first person who's going to be suffering. Putin, the Russian military, the Russian government will be the last. And the same that can be said about Ukraine is that essentially Russia has blockaded Ukraine. There's no food in the street. And that means that the person, the man in the street in Ukraine, is the one who is suffering financially and his humanitarian livelihood is suffering, but not the president of Ukraine who's sitting in his palace and is well fed. So it is a means, but it takes a long, long time to actually work. Okay, so you are an expert in terrorism. Is there a moral way of fighting a war? Traditionally, for the last 500 years since uh, states agreed to look at law in terms of warfare, there were two types of law that we introduced in terms of morality. And I used the Latin expression, ius ad bellum, what is a just reason in order to go to warfare? And ius en below, what is just or legal or moral to be used within that war? So first we have to look and say, why is it just to go to war? And this might be humanitarian to save people. 
it might be in self-defense. And then we have to say, what type of warfare can we use in this war? And a lot of international conventions have uh, progressed over the last few hundred years to ban things. For example, it is not right to use biological and chemical means within a war. It is not right or just to inflict warfare upon civilian populations. In terms of morality, we're seeing everything is amoral, immoral, and unjust about what Putin is doing in the Ukraine. Civilians are suffering. The morality of what in Putin's eyes is the exact opposite. He has gone to save Russians in Ukraine, and he has called the government's action, Ukrainian government's action, as neo-fascist. And this is part of the psychological warfare which has been waged for the last few months between everybody involved in this. Who is just? Where are they being just? And this is what we can call the just and unjust wars, or the amoral or moral wars. Putin's eyes, that's a just war, it's a moral war, as to save Russians from neo-fascist actions taken by the Ukrainian government. And on the other side of the coin, they also believe that uh, NATO countries and Ukrainians believe that uh, Putin's actions are amoral because he has just invaded their territory. And his actions over the last few days have been amoral because people are starving. So we have to say, where is it moral to go to war and what is moral to do within that war? Yeah, I, I can't believe we've run out of time. And I always feel this when, when we chat that you're going to have to come back on to, to talk a little bit more because there's lots more that needs to be said and can be said. Um, but as uh, I think the most poignant point is that ordinary Russians, Ukrainians, uh, the whole of Eastern Europe, I mean, we, we've, we've got a humanitarian crisis, we've got a potential refugee crisis. And uh, the global markets, I mean, it may start there, but it's going to eventually affect all of us, including here in South Africa. So um, let's hope that, uh, well, we don't really know. Maybe we should do a separate program, Professor Siegel, on the implications of this war on a global level, pick it up again in two or three weeks. How does that sound? It would be an absolute pleasure to return. And uh, hopefully by then things will have settled to, and uh, not just in uh, the Ukraine, but also uh, where else Russia is involved, for example, in Syria against uh, Israel. Uh, yes, I think we, we all hope that things will, will come to a better solution in the next few weeks. Thank you very much. That was uh, Professor Glenn Siegel, Research Fellow at the Esri Center for Iran and Gulf States Research, University of Haifa, Israel.